This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Hi, I'm Mary Payne Gilbert, and this is my podcast, Pain in the Pod. Today, I'm going to talk with Julia Lowry Henderson, who created a stunning podcast about Bikram Chowdhury's Rise and Fall. It was season three of 30 for 30. You may or may not be into hot yoga. I'm not. But this is a fascinating study into one man's creation of a fitness craze and his fall, especially in the wake of the Me Too movement. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. Did I say all your names right? You did. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, have th- I have three names too. I was uh, turned on to your podcast by a friend of mine, Ingrid, who's she's very into fitness. And I really love yoga, but I've never been interested in the sweating part of the Bikram, the hot yoga. But I know that you once ran a Bikram studio, so this subject was close to your heart. Um, When did you first hear about the allegations about Bikram Chowdhury? I first heard about the allegations in the late winter, early spring of 2013, when the first woman, Sarah Bond, came forward. Uh, You know, it... It hit the news, and I think I was just attuned to hear the name Bikram and see a headline attached and, you know, to have my head sort of whip and say, wow. Um, so, yeah, I, I had not known that anything like that had happened, um, but I heard this, and I was, you know, shocked and kind of devastated, but also not surprised. You know, even then, looking back, it felt like not not out of the realm of possibility when you really looked at who he was. And yeah, so I've been aware of this since, you know, 2013 going on, you know, five plus years now. But you personally had never had any students or any other fellow teachers tell you, oh, he's like a pervert or he tried to get me to brush brush his hair or all these like weird things. You'd never heard personally of anybody coming back from a retreat and telling you anything like that. Well, Yes and no. I mean, I had never, you know, I managed a studio in New York for, you know, three years. And I never had anyone come to me and say anything about having been assaulted or having, you know, any sort of attempt at assault. I will say that we all knew about the hairbrushing and the massaging at training. It was well known. It was talked about. Um, I can remember it coming up in conversations and teachers conversing in the middle of class, you know, while we're resting between postures in the floor series. And for whatever reason, a teacher being on like a Bikram story kick or a training story kick and and the hairbrushing coming up, I can remember it being talked about, you know, in the lobby among teachers. It was weird, um, but it was seen as just a tick of his personality, and it was something that, you know, no one stopped to really question. It was just sort of – it was a thing. It was a weird kind of icky thing. You didn't want to be someone called on to do it, but it was a thing. What about his, like, ab- abusive and berating style sometimes? Uh, and you have lots of audio of that, of him yelling at students or – people that were in training to be teachers and his just berating them. Had you heard of that? Yes. Uh, I don't think I realized, I don't think I'd ever heard about it in a really, in any context that was really like verbally abusive, abusive in the way that he was. But it was 
well known that this was a big piece of his style, was riding people really hard in any class he taught, uh, but especially at teacher training, that he singled people out, that he gave them nicknames that you didn't want a nickname, that generally speaking, getting attention from Bikram in a class is not a positive thing. It was going to come with some sort of insult or joke or chiding. Um, It was sort of, it was glorified in a sense, right? It was part of, you know, this yoga is really intense and tough. And culturally, inside the community, there is this glorification of the struggle, right? You know, inside a big part of the practice itself is struggling to stay in the room despite the conditions. And I think Bikram's style of teaching and the way he talked to people became an extension of that. And so I can remember, you know, having never been to training myself, hearing teachers talk about how hard he was or the things he would say in training or the conditions of training. And it was like this badge of honor that they had lived through it, right? It was something that gave them a credibility and, you know, it was proof of their mettle that they had gotten through that. It's interesting because when you talk about uh, Bikram as sort of like a cult mentality, I just spoke last week to Josh Block, who did the Uncovering Nexium uh, podcast. And it sounds, I mean, it's almost like you're saying the exact same words he said regarding Sarah from the cult who said, is it's a badge of honor, like to be branded or to have these horrible things. And if other people couldn't withstand them, then they were weak. Like I'm strong and you're weak. So it seems like if you get to go to one of these classes and throw up on your mat and keep going, that's a badge of honor, which sounds like the craziest shit you've ever heard in your life. Like, it, really? I'm going to throw up and then I'm going to keep doing yoga? It's really, it's it, it's crazy. And it, it does, it is very culty, right? It, it It's very cult-like. Um, yes. I mean, in terms of, there are some really obvious ways, like the community itself, you know, adopted the word family. Like you were in the Bikram yoga family. If you went to teacher training, if you became a teacher, you entered the family, which is such a, it was just a loaded word that has such deep cult associations. Um, You know, this, this unquestioning loyalty to a person uh, and his ideology or his belief system, uh, you know, is very cult-like. Cult groups tend to be centered around one very charismatic demanding narcissistic personality. And there is like no denying that Bikram was a very charismatic, attention-needing narcissistic personality. Um, You know, it definitely, it definitely walks a line and it is definitely something that, you know, I would classify as cult-like. I think the tricky part of it is that it was so big that it had a really large fringe element that had no idea about what was going on at the center and would never have realized that they were signing up for something that, you know, the closer you got to it, the more cult-like it looked. You know, like there are thousands, tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people who have or do still practice Bikram yoga who had no idea he was a real person, who had no idea the type of loyalty he demanded, who had no idea what the conditions at training were like. You know, they were just going and doing a yoga. Um, You know, it was definitely, there was kind of a pyramid structure to the whole thing. And the higher up the pyramid you got, uh, the, the closer you got to a line where you cross and it starts to feel like a cult. 
Yeah, totally. And uh, for me, I mean, I did not know myself that Bikram yoga was named after a person. I thought Bikram just meant hot. And I mean, like vinyasa flow or other types of yoga, I thought that's what Bikram meant. And that was so fascinating when I first started listening to it. I'm like, oh, it's a person. That makes sense. And then to understand how it goes, because I've never taken a class. I like yoga, but I don't I don't want to be that hot. Um, that you have to, he has to say, you have to say the exact words that he came up with, you know, 30, 40 years ago. You have to say the exact words in the exact order every time the same. So if you do a Bikram yoga class every single day, you hear the exact same words every single day. Yes. No matter where you go. Uh, That's wild. It is wild. It was a really, it's a very strange, uh, you know, it's a strange development in the world of yoga. It's, um, you know, it's an invention of his making, uh, this idea of copywriting a dialogue and setting it in stone and forcing teachers to use it verbatim. Uh, you know, it allowed this yoga to spread really far and wide. It created, you know, a brand identity. Uh, the Bikram name, you know, before it became associated with all of this, you know, all of the troubles, it was a really strong like brand indicator. You knew you could walk into a studio, you know, in Italy or in Bali or in Japan, anywhere you went, you knew you were going to get the exact same thing uh, in the way that if you walk into a McDonald's, you can expect the same things, right. which is really unusual for yoga. Yoga is so subjective and experiential and every, you know, most disciplines Ashtanga also has series, but a lot of disciplines have teachers who are constantly changing it up, who are bringing themselves to the moment and the experience and tailoring what they're doing in the postures to the students. And it's really hard to walk into any yoga studio and know what you're going to get. And in Bikram, you walk in and you know literally exactly what you're going to get. Yeah, I feel like everybody I know that's done yoga is always looking for a great yoga teacher, or you may say, oh, I love this yoga. And then you go and your friend will be like, oh, I didn't like that so much. So it's very subjective. So it, it, to me, it's so fascinating to walk in and have it be the exact thing every single time. Now, do most hot yoga teachers now, because I, I know a lot have changed it, most have changed it from Bikram to just say hot yoga. Now, I wonder if for them, it was like freedom, we can do what we want, or if they still follow that script. It's really Divided is what I found. I mean, there's a massive amount of people who went to his training over the years. And, you know, there's a spectrum of response. There are a lot of people who do feel a freedom that they had never experienced under him. You know, there are a lot of people who sit in a, a world of, you know, they believe in this yoga. They've seen these postures help people or these postures have helped them personally. But they have been sitting there seeing flaws in the system, not just in the delivery method, but in the repetition of these postures. Like, you know, there are, you know, there are stresses that happen on certain joints because of this particular series done, you know, daily over years and years. Like, you know, repetitive stress injury is like a very real problem. You see actually a lot of teachers who end up with hip replacements in their 40s and 50s. Um, there have been a lot of people who believe in the core of this and the benefit of these 26, but also believe in, 
you know, getting people in and out of them a little bit differently, of being able to better adapt to people that have limitations or physical injuries, who believe in, you know, mixing it up and adding other things, having a more balanced, you know, that was a big portion of people that taught this yoga. There were a lot of people who had a mindset like that and they couldn't express that opinion and they couldn't act on it as long as he was in charge. And now they're able to themselves learn other styles and, you know, they are they have freedom. On the other end of the spectrum, you have people who will continue to pride themselves on doing it exactly Bikram's way, who will continue to believe that is the only way, that it has to be 100% if it's, you know, 99% right, it's 100% wrong. Like all of that mentality still exists. And then there are a lot of people that are still struggling somewhere in between on that spectrum that are trying to understand how to relax and embrace new things and what what it means to teach this type of yoga without the same set of rules in place. I found it so interesting regarding the yoga studios being carpeted. And I can imagine a regular yoga studio it turned up with the heat on a mat and just the stinky sweaty, but I can imagine with carpet how disgusting is that? But he insisted on it. Horrifyingly gross. Uh, is, is that still the case today? Like Bikram yoga suits are still carpeted? You know, I would, there, it's again, it's a spectrum. There are people who are absolutists who, you know, want to maintain their loyalty to Bikram and show him that they're still good soldiers. And they most certainly just, you know, are in a position where every couple of years they're replacing carpet. Uh, or, you know, a lot of studios now are going to all sorts of different flooring types, like, you know, fabricated floors, you know, yeah, there. that's probably one of the biggest <laughs> sighs of relief that happened among studio owners when, you know, this freedom opened up was like, we don't have to have this carpet anymore, because it's horrible. I can tell you from trying to figure out ways with my studio owner to keep it clean. People sweat so much in those classes. You know, they have a mat, they have towels on top of the mat. You often get students who like saturate through two or three towels. The sweat spills around them on the carpet. And then there's just a giant wet spot on the carpet that never really fully dries. You're in there trying to vacuum, you're trying to use like oils and air it And it's just like, it's an uphill, fruitless battle. It's so disgusting. It's so unhygienic. Um, but Bikram had this idea that having carpet was fancy <laughs> and which, you know, I think culturally makes sense for him as a young man moving from Calcutta. You know, it was a it was a luxury item. Uh, and so he hooked into this idea that it was a status symbol to be able to have carpet in his studio. And then he just made it a rule even after it became apparent that it wasn't going to work. That and what I thought was so interesting, the person that you talked to that had worked on the heating systems for the various studios and how, you know, you crank the heat up to 90 or whatever it is. And then, you know, heating systems are just not meant to work that way to run like that. And they were burning out or it's fire. So there was the guy that became employed by Bikram basically to go through and sort of um, reset these heating systems. I mean, there is just so many different aspects of it to keep it going the way that he wanted it exactly the way he wanted it. And another person came on that owned a studio. It was a man that said there was some phrasing that was so outdated and they wanted to change. It was something about a ham sandwich. Yeah, yes, it was something about a ham sandwich. And 
how it made no sense. And they were just thinking like, can we just change that one line? I don't want to be, can, can we, can we change it to a pretzel or something? And it was like, no, has to be this way. Has to be this way. I, I don't know. The whole thing that I just, I, the idea of him in the little teeny speedo and the carpet and the heaters, I mean, you know, it just sticks in my mind from listening to that podcast. Like you just, you created such a great visual in your podcast that you could almost like, you know, it's like smell a vision. You could almost feel it coming through. Now, since I was such a big fan of the podcast, I was wondering if it was going to become a 30 for 30 actual documentary, which are always so great. Uh, no. I mean, I don't want to say never, never say never, but I don't, we don't have any plans to do that. Um, you know, I think we, we kind of felt strongly with this, um, that, especially because of some of the subject matter, that we could actually do more powerful storytelling by taking the cameras away from it and not introducing that, you know, particularly in episode four, where we hear from a victim of his, you know, inherently, as soon as you put a camera on a person, it's going to affect their ability to open up, but it also affects the audience's ability to really go along and listen and empathize with a person. Like, you know, as a as a culture and as a society, we have trouble we have serious issues with dealing with assault and rape culture. And, you know, I think as soon as we see a person, we start judging not only the way they're telling it, but also their physical being as to whether or not they deserved it or whether or not, you know, they brought it on themselves. I think, you know, it it gave us a space to try to cut against the way rape culture mentality is in this country to really just let you meet these women and hear them and have to like go along and imagine what they were telling you. Um, I think it allowed us a proximity that I don't know that film would do. I think you're right. And I, and I told you before we started that I listened to the whole thing when it came out. Uh, you said it came out in May. I think I listened. My friend told me like in June, I listened to the whole. It was one of those ones where it's like, boom, 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 one, you know, one after another. I had to listen, but I didn't ever look at the website because I just wanted to have it in my mind. And it, to me, it's harder sometimes when you see the picture of somebody and you're like, oh, in my mind, they look totally different. So I think that's a great point, especially because there were so many um, victims of his. It's better to just hear what they're saying rather than if you see a picture of them, you might think, oh, you might, you know, may have a preconceived notion of what the person looks like for plus or minus or whatever. I think that's fascinating. So, um, Back to the names of the studios and the actual stinky carpet and stuff. So for the studio owners who still use the Bikram name, what what do you think is the percentage like that are still sticking with the name Bikram? Because I, what I see now when I look around and I'm driving, I see hot yoga. It is, you know, the Bikram name is definitely in the minority at this point. Uh, I do think outside of the United States, it's a little bit different. But he didn't, um, he didn't trademark it or anything like that when he these studios came up. So they were free to change it if they wanted to. Yes. And he has, you know, he has no real legal recourse. He didn't actually have franchise agreements. Uh, he failed miserably at doing that. Yeah, that's um, so surprising. It's it is. It it all sort of it makes a weird sense in the fact that like he had ambition as a narcissist does, but he didn't necessarily have all of the skill or the wherewithal to execute successfully on that ambition. And so, 
you know, in the late 90s when he realized just how big he could become in this country, he needed to, he wanted to expand and he went after that really hard, really fast, assuming arrogantly that in retrospect, he could do anything he needed to do to shore up his control of things. And so, and then that didn't happen, right? Like he gave a lot of people his blessing to open a studio with his name on it, and they obeyed his rules. You know, he would sue or shut you down if you didn't only teach Bikram and you didn't have certified teachers and you didn't use the dialogue. People would behave, you know, to those things. And I think he assumed that that loyalty and the power he was getting from that meant that when he finally had his act together and could come to them with a franchise agreement, that would be like no sweat. But at that point, you know, you can't do that. Like all of these people were really individual small business owners, right? They had started this with their own capital. They were the ones struggling to figure out how to get people in the room and how to make enough money to keep things going and how to keep their heat working and how to, you know, do enough towels. And, you know, they had done so much work and it was all on their own backs that, you know, to come in and then try to retroactively through a franchise agreement take the profit away and own it, like never went over well. He tried several times and it just never happened. Uh, the best he ever got out of people were affiliation agreements. You know, so there's no there's no legal recourse for him to come in if he were to come back to this country and try to go after people that are teaching his, you know, the 26 postures that were part of the Bikram series in something and calling it by hot yoga or, you know, hot 90 minutes or whatever they want to call it. You know, there's no... That the copyright didn't hold up. There are no franchise agreements. Like he has no leg to stand on. So he lives in India now, and you went, you traveled there and interviewed him, and you were not able to record it, but you would come back and report. You know, I was. It was fascinating to me. So when you met him in person, did you find him to be charismatic? Did you feel like you would want to brush his hair? <laughs> uh, so he actually he floats around quite a bit. Uh, he's not he left the United States a couple of years ago, um, and he actually at this particular moment in time couldn't come back to the United States because there's a bench warrant for his arrest in California because he didn't pay a settlement in a lawsuit. Um, so he flits around. He does spend time at his residence in South Calcutta. He spends time in Thailand, he spends time in Dubai, and he spends two big chunks of time in Acapulco, Mexico, because he's still running teacher trainings. And for the last two years, he's been running them out of a resort in Acapulco. And so I went to Calcutta to learn about his like upbringing and about his guru and to try to you know figure out what I could and debunk some of the lies I knew he was telling about this really being his invention and his idea. Um, and then I went to Mexico because he was teaching a training. Okay. And so uh, I went to Mexico. He agreed to meet with me. His assistant took me up to his hotel suite. His kids were there. I met, you know, his kids. And he was sort of exactly what I would have expected to meet. You know, I had a sense that he's he's older He's in trouble, like his back is a little against the wall. I kind of knew that like the narcissism was going to be sort of off the charts and that that was probably the only 
like world or place that he lived right now. And and that's kind of what I found. He just immediately started. He wanted to be charismatic, but he was his energy was so intense and manic that he didn't really come off that way. Um, he was really on a loop, like a just a nostalgia loop about how great he was, but it was peppered with all these kind of like darker, sinister, semi-threatening anecdotes and tales like you know he he just hasn't he doesn't accept where he is um and he thinks he has all this power i mean i heard about every wealthy person he's friends with i you know he's trying to take down every other media story that's ever been done about him he you know told me that journalists are responsible for cancer you know he just oh wow and he just got darker and dark we went down to the restaurant and had dinner and with like his family and you know some of the teachers at training and it just continued the whole time and and he just he got just weirder and darker and more manic as the evening progressed um it was kind of it was a sad experience for me in some ways you know more so than like being in danger uh i just felt like you know I couldn't. I went there wanting to, like, see the things that had drawn people to him and, right. and to understand, you know, if there was any glimpse left of, like, that person in the 70s who was able to come over here and, like, ignite so much passion in what he was peddling. And it just wasn't – it wasn't there. He's just, like, a really old narcissist um, and – yeah, it was really uncomfortable and unsettling and disturbing to be with him. So you spent a few a few hours with him and his family, and then did you come back to your hotel room and just furiously take notes on what you'd heard? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I the whole the point of the meeting was for him to meet me and decide if he wanted to do an interview. And he sort of tipped his hat very early that he was going to do the interview. Um, and then I could tell that I was just being held there so that he could show off and just so that he could have some semblance of control, right? Like my night was now at like his command and discretion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I left uh, having, you know, the last thing I did was set a time for the next day. I think I was supposed to meet his assistant like 11 or 11.30 after the morning class. And so I, you know, went back to my hotel and my hotel room and it was like I needed to figure out everything he had just, you know, I needed to try to remember as much as possible of what he had just said to me. And I needed to like write an interview based on what I had seen, you know, everything I come prepared to talk to him about had this benefit of the doubt that there was still like a human being in there that, you know, they were all questions posed at a human being. And so I really had to come back at it and, and really think about what tape I would want from him. And what were the, like, strategies or tricks I could use to try to engage with someone who's really so stuck in himself and stuck on a loop and full of shit, really. Yeah. Um, so it was a long night. <laughs> Did you ask him about those claims about being the yoga champ of India, you know, when he was nine or it was something so and it, very typical of many cult leaders, right? They give you this, maybe there's a morsel in there somewhere, but it's, you know, it's kind of like L. Ron Hubbard was so many things he said were not true. 
And uh, same with this, um, the leader of Nexium, the smartest man in the world and all these things. So did you ask him about how, you know, being the yoga champ of all of India when he was nine or whatever that crazy story was? Uh, no, much to my dismay. I really looked forward to discussing that <laughs> with him. Um, he hardly let me get a word in when we spent our time together. And his assistant had made it sort of clear in the ground rules that this was us getting to know each other and I wasn't interviewing him. Um, so you which just, was fine. So from, just shut up and listen. Yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, I didn't need to, I didn't want, you know, at that point I was being strategic and trying. All I wanted was the yes so that tomorrow with permission now my tape recorder going and a mic in front of his face, I could, you know, get him on the record. Um, so he, you know, did like a three hour monologue without like really even stopping for air and uh, we did not, although he knew, interestingly enough, he had dodged, he and his assistant had dodged, you know, a year's worth of requests to talk to him. Um, they had a couple times tried to half-heartedly agree if they had like editorial control over the questions and the content, which we wouldn't go for. And then I wrote him from Calcutta and said, you know, I've just spent two weeks here. I met a lot of people that knew you when and that studied with Ghosh, your guru, you know, learning a lot of interesting things and kept it really vague but, like, pointed. And then was like, you know, I'm coming to Acapulco. Would you be willing to sit down? And that, for some reason, knowing that I had started digging around in the back stuff is the thing that finally made him say, okay, yeah, I'll meet with you. I'm not, I'm not agreeing to anything yet, but I'll meet with you on Tuesday. He probably just wanted to know what they said about him. Yes, and he wanted yeah. to try to, like, influence and control the narrative. I had given him some names, and he just kept trying to argue with me over one woman on that list. Like, he kept coming at me and telling me I was wrong, that she wasn't someone's daughter. She was their girlfriend. Um, and I was like, she identifies as this person's daughter. Like, I don't know why we're arguing about this. I still spoke to her. Like, you still know that right. she probably told me that you just co-opted her father's legacy, right. um, you know. But it was just like he – it clearly, like, he was very curious. And I also know from sources there that people who don't hear from him a lot, all of a sudden their phones rang after I'd been in Calcutta with him very vaguely fishing but, like, not overtly asking what he was asking. Since the podcast has come out, have you heard from him or anybody on his side? No. Not a peep. Not a peep. Not a rebuttal. Nope. Wow. Uh, which is interesting because they were very concerned, you know, when I left Mexico. Um, but they never followed up. And since this thing has come out, they haven't said anything. Wow. Are you still in touch with some of the victims that you spoke to in the podcast? Uh, yes. I, I've been in touch with um, everyone that was in the podcast. And... Um, and yeah, I mean, Liz Liz is a, a wonderful human being. She's the woman that ended up becoming like the biggest advocate and helping victims come forward. Um, and, you know, through the process of getting to know her and earning her trust and all of this, you know, like I think I luckily came out with like a friend on the other side. You know, she's like a – she's a person I feel like I'll always know. You know, I've talked to Jill a couple times, you know. I think she's an amazing person and, you know, she was really touched by the podcast and how it came out. Um, 
and you know I yeah I've talked to Janelle I've I've talked to you know everyone that's been in it I have been in touch with um and will continue to you know be in touch with as much as is appropriate or without forcing myself like <laughs> myself into their lives but yeah well I know you said that you spent over a year working on it well it shows it is so well done and I was so glad that my friend Ingrid told me about it it was an amazing podcast and, and like the website and everything it's just it's beautifully done and you know when you go to the to the website and you see the pictures of him and the way you have described it it's it's perfect so the last question that I ask all my guests is what podcast do you listen to or what's like a go-to or what are you listening to now uh I just finished an Australian podcast called no feeling is final it's gorgeous it's five or six episodes. Um, it's from the ABC in Australia. And it's about, uh, it's a really personal memoir-ish podcast about uh, a woman who is pretty honestly dealing with mental illness and, you know, even suicidal ideation and hospitalization, which sounds really dark. And at times it is, but it's also one of the like, sweetest and funniest uh, things I've heard in a long time. It's really honest and beautiful and difficult in, you know, all the right ways. It's real, and it, the sound design and its production is just, like, gorgeous. It's exquisite. Okay, um, that sounds, no feeling is final. Yeah, perfect. That's a good one. Sounds good. And do you have another one? Uh, I'm still looking <laughs> for, this. Uh, well, I loved season two of in the dark and slow burn, um, and I'm binging on cereal. Uh, I'm looking for my replacement. For the longest time, I was obsessed with Rana and Beverly. I don't yes, know. yes, yes. And now they're on this like hiatus that I don't think is going to end. And I have never, I haven't found my Rana and Beverly substitute. And I feel like that is a deeply missing piece of like my sanity and cultural landscape. So I, I feel like I'm still looking for my Rana and Beverly sub. The ladies that did that, I've heard them, one of them on Throwing Shade. They've been on there before and maybe Bitch Sash, maybe trying to think. So, okay. So this is what I like. I like to talk to podcasters who have something really, really serious and it's all very serious. And then they tell me something like Rana and Beverly. I'm like, yeah, you got you to gotta have the other end, right? You got to have the laugh and the serious because you told me about the serious podcast, but now, yeah, you should tweet at them and say, now that you guys are on hiatus, what do you recommend <laughs> to, to, to replace? Because th that is a very, very funny podcast. I love them. I grew up in Massachusetts, so uh, it's a, uh, yeah, it was historical. But they're, one of the, Jamie is the showrunner on um, a show about the Renaissance that's coming out that looks kind of amazing and funny and I think has been like her passion project dream for a while and then Jessica is she was just on Throwing Shade the other day um, yeah she pops in over there yeah, yeah and I think she's still doing a lot of TV roles so I mean it, it, you know it was a moment they both needed to go like pursue their bigger careers which I absolutely understand and respect but I miss them terribly. But it's left a little hole in your day. It has. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Well, listen, I cannot thank you enough. And I'm so glad since I was in New York and it just worked out that we could meet in person. This has been amazing. And so I would recommend everybody go and look up the 30 for 30 podcast. And the Bickram one is season three. It's the only 
season of 30 for 30 where they did a long form just told one story. I would highly recommend it. It's fascinating, even if you don't like hot yoga, which I don't. I don't like to sweat. But thank you very much. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you taking your time to come and meet with me. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. 